Hello, welcome to this special podcast from the University of Brighton. I'm Edwin Gilson, and in this one-off episode, I've been speaking to British Sri Lankan filmmaker and artist Kanan Aruna Salam about his new film installation, The Tent, hosted at the university's Grand Parade Gallery. Kanan discusses his experience in Sri Lanka and the social and political context behind his work. You can see The Tent until May the 12th. I started by asking him about his background and how it inspired his work. I grew up in the north of London from a very young age and, and really didn't um, go back um, to Sri Lanka at all, really, until very much later, for the first time, around 2003. Um, and that was a, a time of um, a, a lull in the civil war that was happening um, really since 1983. And that was a time when there was a, a ceasefire, a lull in the violence, and you were able to go back there, um, for me, back to, to Jaffna, mm. where I was born. And that's when I really um, began to start uh, telling stories. And they began um, really um, stories about my relationship with Sri Lanka and uh, the experiences I had, um, especially um, being British, but Tamil and returning and um, those um, experiences, for example, at the checkpoint and being treated differently, but also about my family who were still in Sri Lanka and how some have fought and recruited and fought for the Tamil Tigers and others who were killed by them. Um, um, who, who were in the Sri Lankan Navy at the time. So this complexity that I didn't really know about growing up in England um, and I found it very interesting and I began to tell stories uh, about um, them initially for the radio and then eventually documentary film. Was it radio kind of scripts or how did that work in that sense then? I'm, a, I'm still a big fan of, of sound and it still plays a big part in my filmmaking. Uh, I always say sound is actually more important for documentary film than, than, than the visuals. I mean, it's sort of counterintuitive, but I think people will pretty much watch and be forgive. you know, less, they're less forgiving about bad sound. Um, and so initially it was for a radio program called The State We're In, and it was a, a global program in English. And they were largely started with scripts, um, with me narrating, but meeting Sri Lankans, meeting everyday people there and interacting with them um, and some natural enga you know, engagements will be recorded. But eventually I, I you know, got all of these things I wanted to say from my perspective off my chest and I wanted to really tell other people's stories and they became narrators of their own story and I sort of stepped back and um, went behind the camera and started to make films, uh, two of which are downstairs, the early, early work. Films that are, that are, that are playing downstairs um, are about mothers who have been protesting for over a year about um, what's happened to their loved ones who disappeared during and after the end of the, uh, at the end of the war. So they were protesting um, opposite 
military camps, government buildings, and um, they want answers as to what happened to their husbands, their sons, their daughters, um, and the government has promised answers and haven't hasn't delivered. As a documentary filmmaker, I'm I'm looking for an arc, if you like, a, a beginning, a middle, and an end. Usually, um, sometimes reality doesn't play out like that, um, and their story for me kind of demanded a, a different way of of telling it. Um, and I was looking for something that was more emotional and immersive, that captured this waiting, um, searching, and, and not knowing. Um, and I found their, their lives frozen in time. And so the idea of doing um, something for this gallery space, which was more immersive, I thought it was a, it was a good fit for capturing their moment. Yeah, could you elaborate on that a little bit more? Like how how the space itself is a, is a vehicle for that sense of limbo, I guess, that you just described there. Well, exactly. I mean, one of the things with this film called The Tent um, is a dual projection. And on one film, it is these long periods of quiet days where there are two, two or three women. Their, their days are punctuated by this domestic chores and reflective conversation. But on these certain anniversary days, large crowds of people, other mothers and families of the disappeared, as well as the media, visit. And there's this demand for drama, if you like, and the families respond. And so it's a very different experience. And I wanted to juxtapose these two very different kinds of days. And I found that these quiet days are just so much more compelling for me personally. And so the idea of using a dual projection, which you can't really do in a sort of documentary setting, in a theatre setting, really worked in a gallery space. Um, I don't expect um, everyone to see the whole film, which is um, 23 minutes, um, but experience it um, in a very different way. As I said, it's aiming to be immersive and how Ben uh, Roberts, the director here, has created these booths to, I think, augment that experience is very interesting. There's a parallel exhibition at the Tetley in, in Leeds um, that's running for a few months as well. And they've decided to project these on, on a single wall side by side. And that's a that's a, an interesting and a different experience. And what's the effect of seeing those slow days like you mentioned then then juxtaposed with, with the meat days is it quite a jarring kind of thing to see or is that part of the intention or? i mean i th i think that is that is part of the the, the intention the, the jarring effect my thesis if you like going into the into the uh, the film was that these two compete for your attention these media days as i call them these anniversary days where there's a sort of bombast and, and, and drama, um, does, does, does that attract your attention or do these quiet days where I feel that sense of loss is, is really palpable, where it isn't massive crowds, banners, and what's for me become through 
intermittent but repeated coverage of 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 women who will hold a photograph of their loved ones for me that's become a kind of trope which i think we people i've desensitized to um and i feel these quiet days and nobody turns up and it is these two women but those days still have to be marked they are routinely surveilled by military intelligence who are trying to put them off they try to put me off uh, when we when we were filming when you say put put you off how do you mean exactly well one of the things with this new government that came in in 2015 it came to power promising accountability promising answers to the families of the disappeared for people whose land has been taken by the military um they promised those would be returned they said that the militarization of the of the north and east um would would somehow change um unfortunately none of that has happened um one of the things i do give some credit uh, to the government is the restrictions on the media that were there before have relaxed um i certainly wouldn't have been able to make this film before 2015 i don't think the women who are pro- who are protesting would have been able to do it in the way that they have been bravely still but right next to a military camp or right opposite a, a government office but i feel that this new government has been victims of their own success in a sense they've allowed these things to happen but it just highlights that their failures really why we yeah, why would they allow allow those things to be exposed though you know what's the what's the benefit of that for them for them they have to sh- they had to show to the outside world to the un um that they are different that they um want to protect the freedom of the media the right for people to um con- you know uh, protest but of course the commitments that they made in 2015 they can't fulfill there's still a military apparatus there's still loyalty to a previous regime um you can't promise accountability for war crimes when it's the same people really who are in power and so this is what's happened the other thing is even with the media freedom there's very different ways that affects people uh, journalists so if you're a a tamil journalist working in the north i'm a tamil journalist but i as i said initially i'm in a privileged position um i have two passports i have you know a, a way to strategize and leave if i need to um but with tamil journalists um they've still during this period been intimidated been assaulted even my production assistant on this film um not directly because of the film but for his other work and he's a young tamil journalist he was routinely intimidated by the intelligence um department there criminal you know terrorist intelligence department um and he had to really leave the country for his own safety you were asking about what happened when we were filming 
so in this new environment, when they see someone like me, they are not going to directly intimidate me. They're going to treat me with kid gloves, but they want to know what you know. What am I doing? They want to take my details. And were you, were you honest? Did you say the entirety of what you were doing? Well, the thing is, for me, my goal was was to continue um, filming, and this uh, group of five uh, individuals. Three of them were in plain clothes, and two were in uniform, police uniform. Um, and this is what happens even on these anniversary days, these media days. There are plain clothes military intelligence who try to look like they're an, another journalist. They're not. You can spot them a mile off. And they're actually taking photos of me, of other Tamil journalists, of the women, to create some kind of record, some archive. And so it is intimidating. I was lucky enough to have a camera assistant who's from the south of the country. He's an ethnic Sinhalese, um, and he was able to speak to them in Sinhalese. That was a, an advantage. And this is the ridiculous thing. Uh, we told them we were making a, an art film, which we kind of were. <laughs> yeah. but, and so we weren't media, we said. We weren't really. And that seemed to kind of appease them and, and they went away. I was then, we, we were halfway into shooting. So we shot the quiet days over a period of two and a half days, um, two nights and a full day. And what I didn't want, because the, the, what was coming up was, was the second evening and it was going to be the, the main focus of the film. Uh, e the evenings are when things I feel are really compelling. Um, the days are quiet. And, and the women don't speak to each other that much. They get on with their chores. They're cutting firewood to cook. And then in the evenings is when the women really sitting down, looking out, um, and the world literally passes by them. I mean, the, the, the buses, the pedestrians, the street dogs. You know, one of the reasons why I thought this was going to be a very interesting film to make was this idea that the tent itself is a metaphor for the world that these women inhabit. Um, they're trapped between hope and grief, and they're unable to, to move on. In the evening, they'll speak to each other. I mean, I speak Tamil, and I translated initially um, the conversations, and I did the initial cuts. And then I pass it to a more native speaker to do the subtitles. And he was saying how what was being said was so natural. Um, this was not something that was being said to the camera. They, they had what you obviously want as a documentary filmmaker, and especially in a film like this, um, forgotten that the camera was there. And they are speaking about their loved ones. They're speaking about dreaming of them. When will they return? And this was, you know, I shot on two nights. This was the second night. The impression I got was, this is what they talk about constantly in their mind. Uh, you know, their lives are frozen. And I, you know, it's, it's incredibly sad. But I knew that with this evening coming up, there was nothing that was going to stop me continuing with this. Um, especially because in order to get this far, you've built up this relationship. You've also made certain 
I don't know, promises to the women that you know this is a really important thing. Um, I think it would have been terrible not to also complete it. And so there was this concern that these military intelligence guys or the police would come back, stop us filming. In the end, they didn't, but uh, they could have. Has this whole process and going as far back as you've been telling these stories from Sri Lankan residents, has it helped you to reconnect almost to, to a sense of Sri Lanka and a sense of place there? Because like you said, you didn't visit until 2003. Has that been part of your own kind of learning process, I suppose? I think for me, when I was growing up in, in England, I think back and I, and I see that uh, I grew up in a bubble, really. If you can imagine, I'm being brought up in a, a Tamil home in London or, you know, uh, we moved around a bit in, in the UK, but um, the war was raging back home. And so really Sri Lanka for me um, was sort of us and them. And it was Tamils and the Sinhalese, the other. And we never, I never met Sinhalese people. We never met as a family. I didn't have any friends. It was only until I went back to Sri Lanka that I met the first time, for the first time, a Sinhalese person. Actually, probably a, a Muslim person. A lot of the stories that I told initially were also um, trying to look at identity and not the myriad identities that I felt I had, but also uh, the diversity in Sri Lanka and how it isn't just Tamils and Sinhalese, it's Tamils, Sinhalese, Muslims, burgers, Portuguese burgers, Dutch burgers. Um, there is a diaspora there, an African diaspora that came in the 1800s. Uh, one of my early films were about them. And also for me, uh, this idea that as a minority, we have also not always treated smaller minorities or, you know, I say we as in some of the groups that sought to represent us in Sri Lanka in this war, um, haven't always looked out for smaller minorities and, and, you know, the terrible things that have happened to the Muslim community. I discovered those for the first time and I luckily, by accident really, was given a way to talk about them and, and I hope to other Tamils as well, you know, in the diaspora, as well as in, in, in Sri Lanka. And for me, it was cathartic. And as I said, once all this, I think, baggage that I had as a, a British Tamil, if you like, and then to go back to the country of my birth um, and to the place of my birth and that journey, once I was able to deal with some of this, um, I was then able to kind of turn the you know the camera and the, and the, and the microphone to others, um, and this is where so so I I I don't narrate anything now. I don't you know put myself in it. Obviously, my frame is in there. You know, in terms of the kinds of things I still want to say about Sri Lanka and this film, this film installation, the tent is is part of that. Um, I would like to keep the spotlight on. The struggle of these women. I think it's really, really important. There is media coverage. They, they have now stopped um, protesting in the way that I've captured in the film. And so it becomes even more like a documentation, if you like, if possible. And I, and I would like to do this to try and screen it in Sri Lanka. 
not only to the mothers of the disappeared who are in the film, the wives of the, the families of the disappeared, but also to the southern communities. One of the things that people don't talk about enough is how in the late 80s, tens of thousands of people disappeared in the south. There was a state terror that affected ethnic Singhalese, young um, Singhalese boys disappeared. And there's been no accountability for that. The reason why Sri Lanka has got this unenviable position of this, probably one of the, the second most enforced disappearances in the world, is collectively from these two conflicts, there's been so many missing people and almost no accountability. Um, it's the most egregious crime. If you are in that position, and I can only imagine if you are a, a, a victim, and I mean the families of the disappeared, and you're in this mode where you're searching. Uh, the writer Michael Ondaatje, uh, who's, who's Sri Lankan um, born, wrote once uh, in his novel Anil's Ghost, he, 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 was, he talked about this double-edged fear that the body in the pit was her son, or it was not her son, in which case the searching continues. That limbo again, yeah. Last year, for example, we, we, Sri Lanka discovered a mass grave in the north of, of the country, a place called Manna. They've found more than 300, I think 380 remains, skeletal remains. They are beginning to do the forensic uh, work on those. Um, I think 20 of them are young children. The scale and horror of enforced disappearances has been brought home by this. And for the mothers of the disappeared, the women who are in my film, in the tent, protesting, that double-edged fear for them hangs in the air. We don't know yet when, what are the circumstances in which these bodies were thrown into this pit. It's unfolding. We will know. There is a report which will come out soon. And it's, 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 it's a horrible situation. Thanks to Kanan for taking the time to explain the background behind his installation. Be sure to stop by at Grand Parade Gallery to see the tent, and it runs until the 12th of May. You can like and subscribe to these podcasts via Spotify and Apple Podcasts, in our regular series, we'll be continuing our inaugural lecture previews over the coming weeks, speaking to Professor Lizzie Osler and Professor Tony Hilton. Thanks for listening.